volatility, uncertainty, complexity. This is the work environment that is our reality. What will leaders need to know to be successful in the future? Who will they need to be to build team member commitment? How will they need to show up to create a motivating environment for their people? Welcome to the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast, a dialogue about how leaders will need to adapt to be successful in a rapidly changing world. And now, please join your host and executive producer, Sal Sylvester, to engage in the conversation about the future of leadership and how to transform people into confident leaders. Welcome to season six of Sal Sylvester on the future of leadership. I am Sal Sylvester, your host and founder and CEO of 512 Solutions, an executive coaching and leadership development firm based in Boulder, Colorado. Season six is all about teams at the top. We'll be exploring how executives and executive teams can create a healthy, aligned, and more human workplace culture both for their team and the broader organization. Today, I'm thrilled to have with us an incredible human being, Nick Johnson. Nick is a CEO, entrepreneur, and he's author of the book, Executive Loneliness. With 25 years of experience leading successful businesses, Nick is no stranger to the unique pressures and expectations placed on executives. And in his book, he explores personal anecdotes. He's done a ton of research, ton of interviews with executives, and he dives into the often overlooked issue of executive loneliness and disconnection. We've all heard of the idea of it's lonely at the top. Well, it is, and the stats and the research support that. So in today's episode, we'll explore the topic of executive loneliness, and we're going to talk about some very actionable steps for executives looking to overcome feelings of isolation and how to build more meaningful connections in their personal and professional lives. Let's go to the interview with Nick Johnson now. Nick, welcome to the show. It's really an honor to, to have you, and I'm really excited about this conversation today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Sal. I'm excited as well here. I know you're dedicated to raising awareness and eliminating the stigma around the phenomena of executive loneliness, as you put it in your book, and that this is a really personal topic for you. Can you share more about sort of the impetus that led you to write this book? Well, it's been my pleasure to do, Sal, because I used to work as a senior executive and perhaps I achieved, you know, what I wanted to achieve and I elbowed my way to the top. And once I found myself at the top, it can be quite lonely, as they say. And I certainly felt that. I thought that was how it was supposed to be. You know, I, I was trying to bite it together, holding it all together and so on. But it was only later on, once I left the corporate world around eight years ago, when I was looking back at it, I realized that perhaps there was an easier way or another way as an executive. And what I now do after I left the corporate world is that I'm working with senior executives where we are arranging confidential peer groups. And what I'm hearing is that for the most senior executives, it is lonely at the top. Yeah. And this is also really personal to you in terms of your mental health journey and it comes out loud and clear in your book in terms of your passion for this subject. Are you willing to share a little bit about your own personal history and journey around mental wellness and mental health? Yeah, certainly. So 
In 2015, perhaps I was at the peak of my career, I received the promotions, the bonuses. I was also at the peak of perhaps my fitness career. I was doing marathons, Ironman events. Everything was going well and I wasn't though internally settled. I wasn't grateful for what I had. Instead, I looked at for which things in my life I could do better in and that included then where I thought I deserved a better company, a better job. I thought I should live in another country. I looked at my wife and I thought I could do better than this. So I basically resigned from my job and filed from a divorce. And I was dilutional, overconfident. And before I knew it, I was sitting there lonely and I turned to alcohol. Uh, So instead of going for my runs, I was going to the bar after work, justifying it that I worked hard. I deserve a break from this. But that's a trap I found myself in for three years. And that was a very much a downward spiral until I hit rock bottom in 2018. And when I couldn't stop uh, drinking alcohol, I'd become completely addicted to that. And I was at this stage overweight. I lost all my fitness. I could hardly go for a walk. And I jumped from job to job and uh, I didn't know anymore what was home. And, and it's out of there. You know, I hit rock bottom and I didn't know if I could go on any, any longer. And it's there off, you know, my journey started, you could say, in 2018 as I found my way back. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And by the way, folks, before I got on the call on this recording with Nick, I mean, he'd already been up at 3.30 in the morning and ran 15 kilometers. It sounds like you've made like a really major turnaround and that's driving a lot of the work that you do with executives and this topic on loneliness and how to overcome some of that. Yes, Alan. And, you know, they say that, uh, you know, at rock bottom, you sort of get that gift of desperation. And, uh, you know, most of us, and especially the men I've been talking and interviewing in the books, we sort of in our 40s, uh, something is normally happened. We have some kind of crisis, uh, the 40 years crisis or whatever it is we're going through. And others, for others, it's a bit of a bump in the road. For others, it's the complete roller coaster. And in my case, yeah, I had to hit really rock bottom in order to really, you know, deflate my ego and patch back my life and come back with a completely different approach where it's about, you know, living a very healthy life, being of service for others. And that is what I do now. I live a a life beyond my wildest dreams where I feel completely connected with the people around me. And for me now, it's about giving back to people and other people who are stuck in loneliness and especially then senior executives. Because I've been there, people helped me to get through this. And now I'm day by day giving back and trying to help others to go through this as well. Yeah, you talk about purpose in your book. I think the fifth step and boy, it sounds like you're really living that purpose. What are some trends that you're seeing around loneliness? I know you talked about this in your book, but for men, especially, it's hard to talk about it. They, in many ways, are less likely to seek help than maybe female counterparts. What are you noticing in terms of loneliness with executives in today's workplace? Well, today we live in this sort of post-COVID era and with all the layoffs, especially at the moment in the workplace, there's so much uncertainty, perhaps talking about someone feeling isolated or feeling that they have stress or they close the burnout is perhaps 
a huge taboo now. People are instead worried about, will I be the next one to be laid off, you know? So therefore, people are trying their best to bite it together, keeping it to themselves. And when I wrote my book in 2019, I asked the people if they would talk about any mental health challenges with their company, for example, the HR or the direct report to the boss. And 84% at that time would not talk about it with the company. And... I bet you if we did this survey now, the number will be even higher. I would say it's probably 95% now. I mean, why would you risk losing your job or putting yourself first in line? Because if your company is going to do layoffs, they're going to have conversations about who to lay off. And if you're not well or you're not around, then uh, you're probably not going to be there. So that at least is the mindset now. And this is the point is, Al, we need to completely change that and we need to have a culture where it's okay to not be okay and we need to be dare to be vulnerable. We need to have honest and deep conversations and that is what I'm striving for and what I'm trying to influence in the workplaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so powerful. So much of my work is around creating an environment that's deeply human Because I think that's where our advantage is. Our advantage as human beings is our adaptability. But that also means that we have to be able to create a culture where it's okay to not be okay and where we can talk about these things and be our authentic selves in that way. We all have things outside of work that we bring into the workplace. It's just part of being human. Yes, absolutely. And and that is where the breakdowns are now. And There's been a lot of drivers in the workplace at the moment and which are great. There's a diversity and inclusion movement, which is also big here in Singapore and Asia where I'm at. But that can also lead to isolation for people as we are balancing this out. So we need to be very careful that, you know, it's not only about shifting the balance between men and women. We need to adhere to everyone because otherwise it's just going to tip to the other side that the men will feel even more lonely and isolated. And and you're right, when I interviewed people for the book it seems like women have a few close friends both in the workplace and outside of the workplace who they dare to be vulnerable with and they naturally tend to open up if there's something that is not right they share that with a friend that friend is most likely going to bring them to doctor or giving them a phone number to someone to call and ask for help but with a man on the other hand and this is i spoke to a lot of psychologists coaches working with men also interviewing men It tends to be the same as in my case. I had great male friends, but we went to play golf together, watching sport together, going to the bar and drink beer together or cycle together. And we had fun doing that. But were we completely honest and vulnerable and sharing what was going on behind the scene and talking about our feelings? Almost never. Yeah, that's so interesting. I've seen maybe kind of related research more along the lines of retirement and also related to men where traditionally that male is working super hard, long hours, and through that process in their 40s and 50s, isolating themselves more and more, attached more and more to their job. And then all of a sudden they retire and they find themselves without a close friend or a few close friends. So they've lost maybe one of our most important needs as humans around connection And then you take away their purpose of their role and all of a sudden you see more depression, more suicide rates, loss of identity at age 65 in retirement. It seems like maybe there's some connection here. 
Yes, absolutely. People define themselves, at least in the Western world, they define themselves in the workplace and so on. And I was just reading the book Ikigai, The Japanese Secret to a Long and Happy Life. Already in the first chapter is a big warning that we shouldn't retire because <laughs> that step is too big. We should live our purpose. Our work should be part of our life and therefore it shouldn't be such a firm transaction or step to it or from it. Mm, yeah, that's so, so interesting. Connection, purpose, critical to people being healthy and living long lives. I'd love to dive into some of the strategies that you outlined in your book so our listeners can walk away with tangible items. Many of the folks that listen to this podcast are senior leaders and executives, I think, who find themselves in these positions of high power. They operate at very high levels and also really lonely you talk about the importance of recognizing and acknowledging feelings of loneliness, taking stock as a first step toward recovery, if you will. Can you speak more about that step and maybe why it's so critical? Yeah, this is uh, something that I learned in my own recovery journey. And, you know, I was grateful and blessed to have an alcohol problem at the time because then I was brought to one of those 12-step programs and yes. this is where I learned. And the first thing there, I was given a sponsor, someone who's gone through it before who helped me to go through these steps. And the first one indeed was taking stock. And what we do there is either you get a spreadsheet or you get a notebook where you write down, you know, all the issues you have and starting with your internal. In my case, I had gained a lot of weight. I was unfit and there was a lot of issues with my health. I had an alcohol problem indeed. My diet was very poor. I slept bad. I had a lot of stress, anxiety. I had also a lot of conflict with friends, family members, colleagues, and I had to write that all down. So when it came to the people, I, I was asked to go back all the way to my childhood and thinking through everything from my young years and writing down people who I had resentments against. So when I had, were thinking about someone, had a, did I have a bad feeling about an incident that had happened in the past? I had to list all this down. And it's almost like, Sally, if you imagine that you're a shop owner, you know, you do a stock take once a year, once a month, you have a look at that and do sort of that audit. But how often do we do that as human beings to ourselves? Yeah. And so that was the first step here. Yeah. When I was looking at your book, what I really appreciated was there's some great practical questions in your book around, the, especially around this particular step. And you're right. I was just working with an executive team a couple of days ago, and we talked about how they spend a lot of time like going through the actions that they take, but they don't spend a lot of time reflecting on how they're doing. And I think with all of the busyness, whether it's actions at work or in our personal lives, that reflection piece, that taking stock is, that's the first step in terms of recovery. What are some of the unique pressures and expectations that you see executives are facing today that is contributing to this level of loneliness and disconnection? Well, there's so much change the whole time. There's so much disruption with the digitalization, the automation and so on, that this constant change that you never have time to sit still or and so on. And that also means that the roles are changing, there's restructuring and the layoffs, as we mentioned, that you never feel safe. We don't have to dig too deep into Maslow's hierarchy and need to know that yeah. we need to have some kind of security in life to feel good about ourselves. And in this gig economy, we're constantly on the edge. 
wondering what is coming up next. And that forces us perhaps to live behind this facade where we need to put it on a constant show. And we can only look at this on our LinkedIn profiles. I'm a victim right. of this myself. You know, we're trying to always put on the best show we can, but is it always the vulnerable, the truthful show and living behind that sort of fake, or as I call it in my book, a smiling depression. That yes. is where I think many of us are in. I saw that. I was really fascinated with that concept, smiling depression. Can you just say a little bit more about that? I'm imagining like part of what I think about in our social media world today, like I'm active on LinkedIn because I think it's important for our business, but gosh, I mean, every time I walk away from looking at Instagram or Facebook and I spend almost no time on those forums, like I actually don't feel very good about myself. Is there anything there? Is that part of what the smiling depression is, is about? Yes, it is absolutely this. It's about that fear of missing out, right? That we look there, we compare ourselves with others, while some form of comparison might be healthy because we might see a friend who's influenced us to go on a good diet or someone has signed up for a race and you, oh yeah, I should also get back into more fitness. So it could be good, but if we're spending too much time on that and we compare ourselves and we feel we look down on ourselves and so on. My wife now, I can say she used to be an actress and TV presenter. And now she moved on from that career. And she look at social media and she have her friends who are still in that industry. She basically gets very jealous and, and miss. Uh, she's thinking, you know, why I wish I was there. I, why did yeah. I leave my career? And you have those guilt feelings, right? Mm, for sure. The positive social media outlet that I recently found, and you may be aware of it as an athlete, Strava. Do you use Strava for any of your training? I do, yes. Yeah. I've actually found that to be very inspirational for me. I can look at, I have a very small group of friends on it, like maybe 30 people. So I'm looking at them and it's actually been inspiring for me. So it's been comparison in the good way, as opposed to the looking down on ourselves that I find in other forums. So step one is really about taking stock. Step two is about seeking support. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so it's really about asking for help. That sits so deeply in us people. We're so scared to ask for help. But the list mm -hmm. you then wrote in the first step when you took stock, it's about looking at that list and, you know, asking for help. There's experts or people who can help you with everything. And in my case, for an instance, I had to be honest, and yes, I had an alcohol problem. I had to address that. And I got the support program for that. I also went to a doctor to get the help, and I went through that. But there was also other people I needed to ask for help. I, I didn't know how to eat a healthy diet. There's so much yeah. you read in the newspaper or something. I needed to talk to someone. So I got a nutritionist to help me with that, who educated me. And I had some sessions there. I also needed a coach to get my life back in order. And those were the things that were there for me. But a lot of these support groups are anonymous. A lot of them are full of volunteers. And that's the step where I'm now trying to make myself available for others as well. Nice. And do you find that specifically for loneliness, there are some elements of support that are more effective? Or I guess as you've interviewed some of the executives in your book, what have you found have been helpful resources of support? 
Well, I have included in my book also a directory for uh, the sources that helped me. But I think coach is always a good starting point. Of course, if you are physically ill, then a doctor, for example, or if it's mentally related, it's good also to see a psychologist, which I did as well. And with all the stigma around that, it was the first time I'd done that. But once I saw the psychologist, it was great. And a lot of these support and helplines are now available online so covid disrupted this you no longer have to be seen in a reception or waiting area to see a psychologist most of them can do it over zoom so therefore the barrier is much lower so those are some of the or the i would say the resources that could be useful Mm -hmm. i think the concept of the idea of asking for help to me is a very vulnerable process especially for people who have an identity that is attached to achievement, to levels, to constantly being more, getting more, building more. I imagine that's maybe one of the obstacles here is just kind of taking that very vulnerable step of seeking out that help. Yes, certainly. I have a friend of mine, uh, his name is Andy Lopata. He wrote a book. He's a UK author. He wrote a book about asking for help and people are terrified of it. And But it's the strange thing is because people naturally love to help. So when we do ask for help, people are there. And now in my community here in Singapore, the confidential peer groups we are running, we have made it as easy as possible for our members to ask for help. And on the mobile app that connects our members, and we have 15,000 members globally now, all senior executives, there's a query function where you can ask a query, which means asking for help in a business sense. So if you want to know about transfer pricing between two countries or the legislations here, you're looking for a recruitment company, you can post it and you can decide to have it with your signature or anonymous. So if it's better for someone to ask it anonymously if they are shy than to not ask at all. So yes. we built this element into an app. And it's really useful. So, and uh, right. as people post it once, they realize they get response. Then we practice this muscle in us the, and we overcome this fear of asking for help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I, what we've noticed with clients, maybe not in the, sort of that same capacity, but related to maybe more feedback around leadership is that over time, as organizations and systems get healthier, then they start to move away from the anonymity and they become more transparent in both asking for help and offering help. Yeah, absolutely, Sal. And I should say that uh, I was very confidential and very shy to talk about my own personal crisis when it happened. In 2018, for about one year, I was only talking within this circle of trust that the support group, the recovery group I was because it was anonymous and I felt safe in there, but I didn't tell anyone outside, not even my parents that I was in this recovery group. I was doing everything I could to keep this secret. It was only a year into recovery, a day when a friend and a colleague of mine died of suicide that I decided to actually tell everyone. And I, I went viral being in shock. I went viral. I made a video. I posted it on LinkedIn where I basically started to raise money and awareness for suicide prevention. And that went around the world. And before I knew it, I was on live radio being asked about it. And the next day was a four-page feature article in the newspaper with my whole life stories. There was no turning back. So I'm going completely confidential to being all over the news, you know, 
in 24 hours. But that was the biggest relief in my life. You know, suddenly I felt that I'm caught out, you know, there's no more secrets, right? I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Just like getting it off your shoulder, being able to express it. And then there's some relief and well, what a amazing story of taking a tragedy and finding purpose and meaning in that to help other people. Yes. And that's a big blessing. And that's why I thank you today, Sal, also for letting me share my story, because every time I speak about this, there's something being lifted from me. I feel a little bit freer. And that is the beautiful thing with vulnerability. Hmm. Wow. You're such a person that's so in service of other people. And so at the same time, while you're helping other people, you're finding that it also helps you. Yes, absolutely. I learned one slogan, I say, in my recovery group that said that in order to keep the gift, you have to give it back. So it's basically that something has to, you know, always go in circles. And that's how the most of the recovery groups not only survive, but they strive because you have that sort of the 12 step is all about giving it all back. So once you've done your 12, you have to give it back. As soon as you stop giving it back, you may lose all the other steps. Hmm. So powerful. And maybe that speaks to why that 12-step process is is such a powerful process and maybe the most successful way in in helping people recover. Yeah, I believe so. And there's a 12-step program for everything these days, everything from shopping, food addiction, gambling, sex, any addiction in the world. And uh, as we lived in this world where there's more pressures in our life, addictions comes easier. I mean, there's a fine balance between a bad habit when it becomes an addiction. And sometimes we don't realize it ourselves once we cross the line. Mm -hmm. So then it can be good to even attend one or two meetings just to get some understanding. Is this becoming a problem? Am I spending too much time on social media or not? Am I overeating or am I gambling too much? Is it hurting me a little bit? Well, It doesn't hurt then to look up your local support group, go and join an anonymous meeting or two and find out for yourself. Yeah, for sure. I have some experience with the 12-step process too. I, When I was earlier in my career, I was an army officer, went through ranger training and airborne training and things like that. And I picked up the, at the time, I thought you used the word habit, habit of smokeless tobacco or dip. And it's extremely addictive. And it just became part of what I did. 10, 11 years later, it really had a hugely negative impact on my life. Like I would leave time with my girlfriend to go off on my own and just so that I could get my next dip. And eventually, I mean, it really had a negative impact on the relationship. It wasn't until that relationship ended where I had to take stock. And then I got some support through that 12-step process. And it was really through that support structure that I was able to get through that. But so I'm glad that you said that because there are so many ways in which we can get support, whether it's 12 steps or other methods. Yes. And thank you for sharing that, Sal. And we are talking about asking for help, right? And and that's what it's all about. And for human beings are so stubborn. We think we can figure it out ourselves. And we're spending all that time and energy in our own head, trying to rethink it with the same solutions the whole time. And then it keeps coming back in circles. It's really, really naive of us to think that we can solve everything ourselves instead of going and pick up the phone and spend an hour or two to go to a meeting and get some new perspective and ideas and get the solution, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, that's so powerful. 
You talk about getting healthy, and I know being healthy, staying healthy has been a really big part of your life. It's been a big part of my life as well. Tell me more about prioritizing self-care and what that means in this recovery process as people sort of work through the loneliness. Yeah, so indeed, uh, the third step is in my book, the getting healthy part. And I was given medication first from the psychologists and doctors as I had to taper off the alcohol in danger of my own life and being addicted. Mm -hmm. I didn't like getting those medications. They made me a bit dozy, but I accepted it and I thought that, you know, this is a phase I need to go through. But my target was, and I already asked the doctor, how long do I need to have this medication? How can I get off it? And so on. Even the doctor said, well, if you start by walking and exercising step by step, you can taper off the medicine. And I was very happy with that. So I we set a target for myself of three months and that's when I stopped the medication. So it was basically reducing the doses of the medicine and as I increased my exercise and coming back to life again. After that, I call the exercise the real happy pill because it's really that natural mm. happy pill. And it doesn't matter if it is a, a daily walk in the morning or an easy bike ride or a hike or whatever it is, because that's all I did. The first three to six months, I, it was so light. These days, I'm blessed that I can go for a jog or do even do triathlons and so on again. But it's the fundamentals of everything. The mental health and the physical health is deeply connected. And for someone like myself who's been there, who hit rock bottom, I need to make sure that I get some exercise every day. Yeah, yeah I certainly notice it myself where you know I get into the cycle of taking on too much, doing too much work, and my exercise slips a bit. If I don't get enough of that physical exertion on a regular basis, then I physiologically feel different and I emotionally and mentally feel very different. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm the same. And I think the most people I talk with feel similar. And especially if you are then a senior executive or executives, we're talking about the, the pressures that come there. We need some time also in our own head when the blood is flowing and we have a good rhythm and in ourselves. And it's a part of meditation for me to have that time by myself mm. and to go for exercise as well. Yeah, it is for me as well. I, one of my passions is around rock climbing. And when I, for me in particular, the one word that really describes what I get from that activity is freedom. And I think we all have an opportunity to find something, whatever that is, that gives us freedom in some physical way. You also talk about in step four, the importance of nurturing healthy relationships. I know that in the research that we've done, we put this right at the base of our model of a very deeply human need. And we found in our work that the quality of our social relationships was in longitudinal studies, the number one predictor of physical and mental health for people. What's your finding in terms of the importance of nurturing healthy relationships? This is a huge one, right? And it's normally avoided by people uh, and especially perhaps executives. That's something they don't want to thread on. But in this step, indeed, it was a really, really difficult step. And in a recovery program, this tend to be the biggest step that has is the most challenging, which also means it's most rewarding. I know people in recovery who've written down a list of 400 people who they had feelings about, negative yeah. feelings, bad feelings, hurt feelings, and people that they have hurt in their life. I myself had about 60 people, including colleagues, friends, and family members. 
And, you know, you have to really think through and it went back all the way through high school to my family. It might have been things that I said to someone, maybe I resigned from a job and I didn't do things right. Maybe I snapped at someone. And then I had to work with my sponsor and talking through each of these steps and come up with an action to each. Was it, for example, possible and suitable to go back to that person and apologize and make amends to make things right now without harming them because someone might think you're crazy if you're going back to your ex-girlfriend from 40 years ago she might be remarried and you damaged the relationship so in that case you could make an apology writing a letter that you then throw in the rubbish bin or burn or you can do a prayer on it at least in your head you made the right thing you understand now that that was not the way to do it but in the case where There's some people that are alive where you clearly did something wrong. It's about coming back to them and making it right. And let me share with you one example here, because what I realized was that I had been rude to my sister a few years earlier. I had stormed off the lunch table when she had gave a Coke to my son and he uh, he was only four years of age. I didn't want him to drink sugar soda at the time. So I stormed off the table and left them sitting. And I remember she tried to call me later. I ignored the calls. I ignored her messages. And our relationship really went cold after that. For a few years, we didn't speak much. We saw each other at family gatherings, but there was not much more there. We were not close. So when I went through this, I realized I clearly have to deal with this. So I took the chance and asked to see her for lunch. And I mentioned I said, I apologize for the, for the happened. That was very silly of me. I should have just kept my calm and said that I don't want my son to drink a sugar drink. And, you know, and then we gave each other a hug and it was all over, you know, and the relationship mm. was then repaired. It was back to what it always had been. But there I was walking around with this pain for a few years inside me thinking about when I thought about my sister, that was the underlying feeling I had. So something as small as that, is normally making a huge difference. And you can imagine then if you go over 50 or 400 of these incidents, as you clear them, you just completely, Uh, something is uh, releasing from you, right? Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That is so powerful. The power of an apology to clean the slate and start fresh. So incredible. Your final step is really about finding purpose. It's interesting because as as we think about our human workplace needs model, it's also at the top of our model. Like, is there a way to impact our community or find meaning in what you do beyond the widgets that you make or services that you provide. Say more about this step and how it helps to overcome feelings of loneliness and disconnection. In the first point here is that for many leaders, it's about deflating our ego. I think many leaders perhaps have a very strong ego that is good and is fueling perhaps us to go to the top and and to grab these high positions, but they might not be something that is positive for us, our mental health and our well-being. So in that sense, it's to admit to ourselves that there's a bigger purpose out there and perhaps we are not the center of the universe. There might be a power greater than ourselves out there somewhere. So it's not about, you know, becoming uh, too spiritual or religious, but just start to accept that perhaps not everything is about me and really then shifting everything and your learnings that you have gone through these steps, becoming more of a humble person, more open, more approachable. And it's about being service and then, as you've gone through these steps and giving it back and teaching your teams and the people around you to also live a better life and looking for something better out there. Awesome. 
maybe a final question here and we'll start to wrap up. What changes do you hope to see in the business world in terms of how executives are supported and maybe even encouraged to take care of their emotional well-being? Well, I hope to see more vulnerable leaders. I really hope more leaders dare to be sharing some of the issues they're going through, some of the challenges, basically being more human. Because if it starts from the top here, the leaders are more vulnerable, then naturally the teams also will be more vulnerable. And I can just end by sharing one policy I have in my company now with my team is we have a fail fast policy where it's okay to make a mistake. You raise your hand and say, I made a mistake. And then after that, this is what we all can learn from it. And we have even in our budgets now, 10% of our budgets is called exploring budgets. So that mm-hmm. means that, you know, if you do make a mistake, then, okay, you put it in that bucket. And then instead, it's about talking about, you know, what can we all learn from this as an experiment? And then we try to move forward from there. Then it, you have this open culture where we can talk to each other. Mm, I love that. Nick, thank you so much for your time, sharing your story, sharing your insights. It's just been such a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Sal. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sal Sylvester on the Future of Leadership podcast. You can get session notes on our website at 512solutions.com. That's the numbers 512solutions.com. Please follow and like the podcast on iTunes or wherever you're tuning in. And if you want to learn more about how we can help transform your people into confident and action-oriented leaders, please check out our website at 512solutions.com. I look forward to continuing the conversation about the future of leadership. I'm out.